Hey, it's John, back with another Dirty Spoon Podcast Extra. Every year, Asheville hosts Chow Chow. What started out as a food festival has over the years morphed into something very different. Instead of one giant grand tasting that lasts a weekend with speaking panels and workshops on the fringes, Chow Chow mashes all of that together, hosting a series of dinners over the course of the summer. But unlike food festivals, it isn't just about the gluttony of stuffing your face with food and getting hammered on free booze. There's always a deeper message and panelists to speak to that message. This year, the Diaspora Dinner looked at the stories of immigrants in the industry told through their food. Their Entrepreneurs of Color Dinner highlighted regional entrepreneurs and the barriers of entry that they faced into both the restaurant scene and the business world. At Chow Chow, it's never just about what's on the table, it's about the history of how it got there. This year, as the festivities enter their final month, they've invited me back to host one of my favorite Chow Chow events. The Food Stories Dinner is to be held on Thursday, September 8th. As near and dear to my heart as about any meal could be, Food Stories focuses on the way we tell stories through our food, as well as the stories that are contained in the things we eat. Having written about food and beverage for nearly a decade now, for every outlet from Salon to Paste to the Mountain Express before finally starting Dirty Spoon, food stories are at the core of what I do and have always done. Someone else who understands this process explicitly is Asheville food fan Stu Helm. One of the most widely followed food influencers in town, Stu has been telling people about local restaurants for as long as I have, if not longer. I fell into food writing kind of ass backwards. I work, I've been working at home for about 20 years as an artist. And so as an artist, I, you know, I'd go insane if I didn't get out of the house. And so I would go out to eat up to three times a day, sometimes even four back when I would go out to drink late at night and stuff. And so in Chicago and Boston and other big cities where I lived, that was like fun and easy. And then when I moved to Asheville, I was like, huh, this town's so small. I'm going to run out of places to eat. And you just can't run out of places to eat in this town. Like, it's incredible the way the food scene in this tiny little town has just exploded and become so just not just exponentially bigger, but exponentially better year after year, in my opinion. Stu started posting on social media about the restaurants he loved but they were mostly pricey, expensive places that stood out to him. A genuinely enterprising person, Stu figured out how to turn that habit of eating out and his own colorful personality into a hobby that eventually became a career. My friends literally were like, dude, it's so expensive to go out to eat. We don't want to eat anything we don't like. Can you start writing reviews for Facebook? So that's how I got started. Writing was just to write reviews for Facebook. And that's why my writing style is so fucked up. And because I was just writing for my friends and I was like, this is a fucking great cheeseburger and uh, emoji, emoji, you know, and and trying to make my friends laugh. And then when I started to get published by Ash Vegas and my audience went up to like 8,000 views sometimes, I was like, oh, my God. Um and so then, then I didn't really clean up my writing style because love it or hate it, it was making me kind of well-known at the time. But I did clean up. I stopped writing negative reviews, basically, which I had written for my friends. Other people can write negative reviews. Yelp is full of them. I just decided for my own purposes, it's not really who I am on my own personality level. Like, yes, I can be critical, but I don't really like to shit on people. And and good is I feel like for some reason is less subjective than bad. 
right? Like everybody can kind of agree on things that are good, but people are going to disagree that something is bad or not. That's probably not true, but that's just the way I feel about it. It was, even though in the beginning, I was almost playing a character of this like grumpy food writer, right? And then I kind of dropped that and I was more myself because in reality, I'm very enthusiastic about good food and don't really care about bad food. So I don't write about it at all now. It's funny. Much like Stu, when I started writing about food, I got into the game because I felt like I had something to say, that my opinion mattered and I wanted it to be heard. But also like Stu, the more I did it, the more I realized that I wasn't important to the story at all. That the best thing I could do is get out of the way and help other people's stories be told about their food and about their culture. Yeah, you you summed it up in a nutshell right there. Like, you, you come out the gate, you're all people are giving you thumbs up or they're trolling you and stuff. And you're like, yeah, man, it's all about me. And I'm going to recommend food to people and shit all over other food and everybody going to love me or hate me. And then nine years later, I'm still doing it. And I'm like, you know, everybody likes attention. <laughs> but I'm like, let's put some attention over here on these people who are actually doing something really special. For this chow chow dinner, each storyteller is paired with a chef who interprets their story through a single course of the meal. Stu has been paired with Patricia Sands, the chef and owner of Propuseria Patty. And in typical form, Stu quickly shifts from his story to hers. My real story at this point um, is not so much about me uh, because I did what I did to get where I am. Like basically the story is like middle-aged white guy self-promotes until people can't help but notice him, right? Um, But these days, the most interesting part of my life, not just what I do to make money um, or to entertain people, but of my life is meeting people like Patty And uh, I couldn't have met Patty without my friend Luis Carlos, who acts as he's a professional interpreter and he acts as an interpreter for me uh, in certain situations. When I go out to meet people who speak Spanish and I don't speak Spanish and Patty does speak some English, but not very much. We could not really communicate if not for Luis Carlos being there. So... My story being what it is, is kind of funny and interesting in a way, but when I hear people like Patty tell her story, like, holy moly, here's a person who moved to America without knowing how to speak the predominant language, Um, and she moved to New York to hook up with people that she knew there, and those people had moved away. So she arrived in New York City all by herself, and then her journey to where she is now is just incredible. So I'm not the kind of food writer who writes people's stories the way that you might do, Jonathan. Like, you're more of an in-depth food writer. I I call myself more of a food blogger because I write more like a paragraph or a blurb about food. But it's really, really helpful for me to know people's stories when I'm writing about their food, even if it's just a little blurb. Someone else who found other people telling him stories through their food is this guy. My name is uh, Poncho Bermejo. Pancho is a co-director for Beloved Asheville, a nonprofit that helps out the displaced and disenfranchised in and around the city. So yeah, I have been in the in the in the organization in Beloved Asheville probably around seven or eight years now. We do a lot of community work uh, related to different different problems that we face in the community. Uh, in the middle of the pandemic, uh, we share 
more than 5 million pounds of food in different communities. So we deliver to diapers. Uh, we, we, have, we, del- we share more than half million diapers. We do vaccinations in the street for people that was living in the streets. And we do vaccinations too in, in different restaurants in the city for workers that was not available to, to take the vaccine at the time then, then was the, vac- the, uh, the vaccination clinics. Um, and vaccination too in the in the trailer parks in different trailer parks and in different neighborhoods around around the county as the pandemic and the subsequent unemployment raged on beloved expanded their outreach into neighboring communities like black mountain and swananoa and the more houses poncho visited he noticed something so in this time uh, we met a lot of different people and one of the common things that started happening in all these places in black mountain swananoa and all these places uh, even people start sharing food with us. These families all began sharing their food with Pancho and his team. Pancho, who is from Mexico, recognized much of it. Mole, tamales, and traditional breads. But he was fascinated by the foods from other Latin cultures that they received, like pupusas from El Salvador. Something that was very powerful for me, I was born in, I was born in Mexico, uh, is to have more knowledge about the different culinary food of, of Latin America, because we met... People, people from Honduras, people from El Salvador, uh, from Colombia, from Peru, uh, all them in, in the same in the same county. And something that was uh, resonating with me was uh, the different ways that people use masa uh, to create different dishes in different in different countries. Masa is a cheap staple ingredient made of cornmeal, and Pancho saw it everywhere. Cheese stuffed into masa to make pupusas, tamales that varied depending on their nation of origin, with varying ingredients stuffed into layered and spongy steamed masa. He was amazed to see how diverse the cuisine was, using basically all the same ingredients. So from there I was thinking in, in how, how, how amazing it is uh, that people then create uh, food, because they have to... They have to create a dish with elements that is already here. Then, then probably it's a dish that is already created only because they decide uh, to incorporate a new, a new condiment or a new veggie in the food. Um, became a new dish. So I was thinking in, in Mexico, then is the place that I was born. Uh, they have tacos. Then it's, it's, it's an emblematic food in Mexico. Uh, and and if you have a tortilla with food in the middle, it's a taco. Only if you have the same food, the, the same tortilla, only is is fried in in oil. It became a dif- became with a different name. And, and later, if you have cheese in the middle, became a quesad- became a quesadilla. Or if you have uh, pepper in top of the tortilla, became a chilaquiles. Uh, so it made me think in in all the all the artistic ways that people frame uh, the different food that they create. Pancho reveled in that ingenuity, in people's ability to take what little they had and turn it into a delicious bounty. But that revelry quickly turned into memory. When I was young, uh, I grew, my family came from the mountains. Uh, so my mama was born in the mountains in, in a place that is called Guadalajara. And my father was born in, in the mountains in a place that is called Aguascalientes. Uh, so something that we used to do because we don't have a lot of money is we try to recycle everything that we can. So one of the things that we have, 
one of the food that we have a lot over was tortillas. So I remember in, in the kitchen of my mama, uh, she she saved a lot of tortillas in 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 the wall in, in plastic bags. And, and when we have three or four uh, of these of these tortillas, it became a very hard tortilla. And when we have three or four of these, when my father uh, used to tell me that he's gonna he's gonna make the special dish, then he's gonna be the dish that we're gonna have. His father would take stale tortillas and mix them with tomatoes, onions, and peppers until it concocted a delicious meal that was unlike anything Pancho had had before. And he called it uh, lluvia de nubes, so it's like uh, cloudy rain, rain, something like that is the translation. Um, and he, I remember then I used to think, oh, wow, how, how special. I, I'm going to be lucky today because he's going to have this special dish. So what strikes Pancho now is how smart his father was to dress that dish with dignity. In any other context, Pancho would have known that they were eating stale tortillas because they didn't have enough money to make fresh ones. Instead, his father figured out a way to make him excited about it, to take pride in the ingenuity. But it was also about a lot more than that. The special dish was the food that he was creating, yes, only was in top of this the memories that we create together. So it was made me know that uh, the special of the dish is the company, the special of the dish is with who you share the food, the special of the, di- of the dish is the memories that we create together and this is going to live forever with me. So made me realize that he was teaching me that I have to value the moment, the same gift. Uh, then my father offered to me this day, uh, then he created this special dish, then is the knowledge of knowing how special is the day that we are in, and how special it is at the moment and the people that we have around, and how important it is for us to create these memories because this is, can be the one of the best days of our lives if we decide this to be. Because it's, it's about the food, only it's about us deciding to be present in the moment that we are in. The sharing of food has also taken on a whole new meaning as of late for Asheville native Allison Scott. As the director of Impact and Innovation for the Campaign for Southern Equality, Allison has been advocating for LGBTQ Southerners among schools, churches, businesses, medical practices, and local government for the past six years, but has been working as a community organizer for over a decade. She was also recently nominated as a candidate for Asheville City Council. Um you know, just being a trans person myself. And when I was coming out and and working in the world, it was really, um, it was really difficult to do that and just stay employed and keep a life. And, you know, and I think there's parts of that's because it's the South and part of that just because of the world we live in. And, uh, but I think some of it is uniquely Southern. Like, you know, I think there's always a, there's a strong religious side to the South and its culture and history and growing up, um, not necessarily religious, but, you know, that's the thing about being Southern. So I tell people that, I, that I'm like, it doesn't matter if you're religious or not. If you truly grow up in Southern culture, you're surrounded by religion and you kind of like you're in its rules and systems anyway. And it definitely affected my life being trans and queer. And then you have in the mix aspect of growing up in, you know, poverty and and I and I mean like poverty in being homeless a few times in my life and you know on uh, government food assistance and you know just having to live like that when I was younger, 
you know, it's a more, it's a very common experience in the South. You know, when you talk to people and talk about like Appalachian poverty, you know, it's generational. And I know it was very common for a lot of my family because even when we were uh, around other family members, you know, it's, it's like we were all in the same boat. And, you know, even the ones that had houses are saying it was a house is a generous term for a shack. Um, and then, you know, a lot of us lived in trailers and, you know, just real Southern Appalachian typical kind of poverty, which with food, that means, you know, we ate mostly what was grown uh, either by us or neighbors. And also I have a lot of, you know, a lot of memories and history with food. You know, you eat stuff that's in season or you eat stuff that you can for uh, out of season and you know so even when you're or especially when you're poor like that I think um growing up that way you know you you know you just get used to um uh food is a big deal in the south and having family meals and sitting down to eat and everything it just it brings back a lot of memories yeah yeah, yeah. um and I, you know I, I wonder too how you especially going through the transitions that you've had to and the the changes that you've had to in those environments, I'm sure the dinner table took on a lot of different meanings for you. Yeah, it really did. Because um, when I was little, we, some of it was because of poverty. And so I was growing up in a, you know, a family with, um, you know, substance abuse and, violence and all kinds of different things it did not mean family meals were fun and then as i got older i really enjoyed family meals because i you know it was my home then and i got to set the table in the entire way from the food to the atmosphere and i had my family around me and it was a loving supportive environment and then coming out i lost all my family so then I lost my family meals and a family meal was a big deal to me is sitting down and having a meal with everybody. And after coming out and losing all of my family, you know, it actually become a very lonely time. And I literally, you know, eating by myself at times. And um, it was just a real stark change and actually reminded me more of like my childhood of just, you know, there's, there's not all that meaning and everything behind it. So it was kind of, it was very, it wasn't kind, it was actually very hurtful to lose something that meant so much to me, you know, and then have to build it back up for a second time in my life and now build it back up with my, you know, my partner and, you know, with him and my, my son and, you know, and my chosen family and, you know, and, and have to do it all again. So it just feels like a constant, a constant life cycle of rebuilding. Yeah. Yeah. Does it feel better each time or is it, is it, what is, what's the process like? I don't know about better, but it feels good each time. You know, I don't know that one can be better than the other, but they're definitely different, you know, of having more chosen family now than um, having birth family. Um, It's definitely changed it. Um, But yeah, I wouldn't say it's better. It's just different. And I think it's healthier. I, you know, <laughs> definitely healthier. And I'm, I'm really glad that I'm was able to live authentically and do that. And um, I'm sorry, I feel like I'm locking up a, a little bit around it because, you know, it gets kind of emotional, but yeah. 
Yeah. For Allison, the dinner table was always a place where everyone could come together. But with each disruption of that family she built around her, she has strived to build it back stronger and better. And with each rebuild, it seems that she has also gained a little more control. Control over herself and her identity, control over who she chooses to sit at that table and to be family, and eventually control over what was served. I've always enjoyed cooking, and cooking for my chosen family now is very meaningful for me. It's, you know, it's very different because most of them are not Southern. Most of them moved here and most moved from the West or the North or all kinds of different places. And um, I'm like the only like true Southern one. So it's a lot of fun to get to share and sprinkle in Southern culture with them, you know, with family and especially doing it with mealtime because food is just so important to me. I am a big foodie. I love to travel and I love finding new places to eat and different kinds of food and cultures with food and getting to sprinkle in some Southern stuff with people who've never got to experience it is just a new kind of love for me, which has been very joyous. Oddly enough, that connection to the kitchen allows her to reconnect, taking her back to those Southern traditions and to those old family memories. Part of it's been reconnecting to my roots because it's been fun, like, you know, things I grew up with, like making biscuits, you know, and, and eating like, you know, and making like, you know, fried chicken and, you know, doing all these things has now also kind of become trendy when you see so many places that serve like Southern food. Um, and I kind of got away from eating Southern food for a few years and I've kind of found my way back into it there's so many memories of growing up and cooking with my grandmother and like helping her roll out biscuits and, uh, you know, and make like collard greens and, and all these different things. And getting to do that again and getting to share it with people in my life has really been a lot of fun. And it's brought back some of the happier memories of my childhood of just because I adored my grandmother. And so that, that part's been a lot of fun. For the Chow Chow dinner, Allison worked with Chef Michelle Bailey of the Smoky Park Supper Club. Michelle listened to Allison's story and developed a menu around the foods that helped tell her story of both the dinner table of her past and the dinner table present. Well, Michelle has worked up just an absolutely incredible menu, and it's really great. It includes some of my favorites, like collard greens, uh, pimento cheese. I love pimento cheese. Um, yeah, so uh, the menu she's got is really good. And it came about with us sitting down and kind of talking about that and around especially the seasonal nature of food in the South and of having to can food and prepare it. And, you know, you eat some of the stuff you grow right away and then a lot of it you put up. So the menu is really built off of that kind of Southern culture of like, what did you eat when it was in season? also is mixed in with stuff that you canned up from previous seasons. Chow Chow's Food Stories Dinner will be held September 8th at 6 p.m. The dinner will also feature stories from Southside community leader Roy Harris and Eastern Band of Cherokee Indian author and teacher Annette Sanuk Clapsaddle, with additional chefs from Cultura and the Edison Group. For tickets, visit exploreashville.com.
The Dirty Spoon is a production of Dirty Spoon Media. I'm Jonathan Ammons, and I'm the editor-in-chief. I record and produce the show and write our original music. Lexi Harvey is our editor-at-large, sources our stories, handles our website and marketing, and, for full disclosure, is also a Chow Chow board member. Catherine Campbell keeps the engines running behind the scenes. To listen to our back catalog of episodes or find print versions of our stories, visit dirty-spoon.com. We'll be back next month with a brand new episode of the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour, which you can find wherever you find your podcasts, always bringing you stories from the people who shape what we consume right here on the Dirty Spoon.